There was a sense, at least in terms of looking back at Apollo, that, oh, those were the golden days of American spacemen to the moon, and everybody was behind the program. But when we looked at the information, we just sort of found that actually the, the support for the space program was always rather lukewarm. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Space is a topic that, it seems, is often in the news these days. And in June of this year, the National Research Council's Committee on Human Spaceflight, uh, following two years of meetings and deliberations, issued its official report entitled Pathways to Exploration, Rationales and Approaches for a U.S. Program of Human Space Exploration. The report looks at the long-term goals of the U.S. space program, particularly with an eye towards an eventual mission to Mars, and makes recommendations for the future of the human spaceflight program, its rationales, and its priorities. Dr. Asif Siddiqui is a professor of history at Fordham University, and he served as the single historian on the committee. He is the author of numerous books and articles on the history of space programs and the history of science and technology. His most recent book, The Red Rocket's Glare, Spaceflight and the Soviet Imagination, 1857-1957, was the recipient of the Eugene M. Astronautical Literature Award from the American Astronautical Society. He has just finished a year-long tenure as the Charles Lindbergh Chair in Aerospace History at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Earlier this week, I spoke with Dr. Siddiqui at Fordham's Lincoln Center campus about his role as the historian on the committee, the history of the U.S. space program, and the role of historians in creating and advising on public policy matters. Well, welcome to the podcast, Asif. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So, first of all, can you tell me a little bit about uh, about the committee right. um, and sort of what its goals are and how it came to be, you know? Well, uh, uh, around 2010, uh, Congress, or some people in Congress basically decided that it was time to revisit the kind of state of the space program in the United States. And an act was passed um, basically requesting uh, the National Academy of Science to establish a committee to basically assess the state of the United States space program, particularly its uh, human spaceflight program, so manned spaceflight. Um, and so the committee was formed at that time, and I was invited to be on that committee. And we had about 14, 15 members. But it basically worked on the aus auspices of the National Academy of Science. And uh, so we worked for two years, and then we finished our report, and we're, we just delivered it to a bunch of people. Um, yeah, in back Congress. in June. Yes. Yeah. And what was the what was the sort of I mean, what was the goal of the um, of the project? Well, the goal was uh, firstly to assess where we are. Uh, there were a lot of things going on in, in the history of American spaceflight uh, uh, and and the, the sort of the current state too. The shuttle program had just ended, and the, the there was a sense that things were adrift, and certainly in the public, and there was a sense that we didn't really have any grand objectives anymore. Uh, for, for example, something like going back to the moon or going to Mars and so on, these kinds of things. So one of the objectives was to not only to assess where we are, but to see where we can go in the future. And uh, so we had a lot of p input. We talked to a lot of people and we came up with some conclusions or drew some conclusions about uh, both where we are and where we might go in the future. Um, and I remember uh, some of the findings of the committee. Um, I mean, one of its primary findings is that there's simply not enough money mm -hmm. um, being spent on the space program. Yeah, yeah. In terms of what the committee's sort of propositions were for mm -hmm. involving the public mm -hmm. and creating more public discourse vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis the, the space program, mm -hmm. what was the finding there? Well, then this is where the history part comes in, I think. Uh, uh, 
and it requires some some reflection on the history of, of American spaceflight. When NASA had the Apollo program in the 1960s, uh, you know, going to the moon and landing an actual human being on the moon, which was an enormously complicated enterprise, um, you uh, NASA was spending quite a lot of money at the time, and Congress basically gave NASA kind of carte blanche in terms of its spending. And you, you, they spent like $25 billion uh, in one decade, which is roughly about over $100 billion in today's dollars. Right. So um, there was a sense, at least in terms of looking back at Apollo, that, oh, those were the golden days of American space. We went to the moon and everybody was behind the program. But when we looked at the information, we just sort of found that actually the, the support for the space program was always rather lukewarm. I mean, not, not necessarily negative, but what we called a soft positive. So there was always support. Uh, but not enthusiastic, at least um, in terms of the broad public. And mm-hmm. uh, that kind of, that level of support has actually re- remained pretty static across 40, 50 years. And that's how people generally seem to feel today. And we ran some studies, actually, in terms of polls and things like that. So, mm-hmm. But there is a sense that people don't really think too much about space. Uh, our job wasn't necessarily to sort of foster any kind of massive public interest in it. Our, our job was to may- maybe assess where public interest is because NASA is a government-funded agency, so it does have to acknowledge the fact that the public plays a role in it and uh, public support and public opinion uh, plays a role in it. But of course, there seems to be a kind of, as I said, ambivalence about space. There's support, but not too much. And we didn't really recommend any particular strategy, but we did find that Everybody, I think, agreed that NASA really doesn't do a good job of it, getting people interested in space. I think we can we saw that. Yeah. In terms, though, of, of then if public discourse mm-hmm. is not playing mm-hmm. that much, you know, public cry of we must go to space, yeah. if that isn't playing as big of a role right. because there isn't that level of public mm-hmm. discourse, what then is sort of the history of the motivation right. for going to space? I mean, yeah. why does, why do... In the, in the 1950s, mm-hmm. did we suddenly decide, okay, now it is yeah, time yeah. for us to go to space? Right. Had we reached a certain technological level? Right. Was it, you know, the aspirational, it is there? <laughs> People tend to think that, oh, we went to the moon maybe for exploration, you know, because it's there, the Everest, uh, you know, argument. Uh, or because for science we wanted to learn or to explore. But the reality is, and I think many people would agree, we went there for politics. It was a purely Cold War program. President Kennedy, you know, comes into uh, office in 1961. He's, you know, sort of suffering from some self-confidence in terms of asserting American power. So we have to go to the moon. It's a bit more complicated. I'm simplifying. But generally, that's that's how it sort of begins. And we have to beat the Russians. We have to beat those damn commies. And so we end up spending a lot of money to do that. Um, that was the original motivation for our human spaceflight program. Now there were other things. But we why did. space? Yeah, as uh, opposed to something as, as opposed right. to something else. Right. I think in that because the sort of the challenge had been laid down by the Soviets in the late fifties with Sputnik in oh, nineteen fifty seven. Right. They sort of opened the door and said, "Look, we can do this in space, and you can't." It was sort of a kind of teaser, you know. And so, and they kept on teasing <laughs> us for a few years about, you know, we can. They did. They had so many extraordinary firsts in space, right? You know? And right. Uh, there's uh, first man in space, yeah, first, first man in space, first uh, probe to the moon, first uh, woman in space, first multi man crew. I mean, they're just a. You can make a whole list of these things. And so there was a kind of sense of public embarrassment, I think. And so space became this kind of 
arena, this vehicle to assert national power. I mean, of course, it, you're right, it didn't have to be space, but I think the gauntlet, the, the challenge had been laid down by the Soviet space was became that kind of arena of uh, discourse. Uh, was there was there something specific that motivated the Soviets yeah. to go into space? I, um, mean, I think, you know, and I've written about this, is the Soviets or Russia, Russian culture in general, had a very deep engagement with cosmic ideas that date back to the 19th century, and uh, a lot of them really nutty and crazy, but you know, there was by the by the mid twentieth century, by the fifties. You know, there uh, there was a widespread acknowledgement and awareness that space was going to happen. You know, something was going to happen in space. Unlike many other countries, there was that kind of awareness. So, in some sense, I'm not actually surprised that the Soviets were in space first because they had this kind of deep cultural sense of destiny. You know, we're going to go out into space, and right. and and in Westerners, I don't think have a really understanding of that because it's it's so bizarre and weird to have that in a culture. And but they did have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not all of it is what we would call scientific. It's it's more mystical and spiritual. And, right. Yeah, yeah. In a way that that I guess didn't exist in the United yeah, States. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a more sort of rationalist response. Not that people weren't interested in space in America, right? And certainly there were, and you know, there's a lot of science fiction in the 20s and 30s, for example. But it wasn't combined with sort of what I would call a millenarianism. It was like space was going to fundamentally transform our lives. You know, it wasn't just exploration and kind of fun and cool. It was going to really change us. And so mm-hmm. that kind of thinking uh, was quite prevalent in Russian culture and you know along with many other wild and wacky stuff I mean especially when the Bolsheviks take over in 1917 there's like an unleashing of weird utopian thought (laughs) and a lot of it is really crazy Uh, a guy named Richard Stites has actually written a wonderful book uh, called Revolutionary Dreams about Mm -hmm. all the crazy stuff that comes out in Russia in the 1920s in terms of just crazy ideas about how to remake society and space was one of those ways. Why do you why do you think that that never because the United States yeah. I mean we did have our fair share of sort of sure. nutty pseudo science sure. sure, sure. as well yeah. that that does happen about the same time right, I mean, right. in in the late nineteenth and early twentieth yeah. centuries yeah. I mean had that sort of had that trend disappeared from Russian science yeah. in the same way that it disappeared from from U S science yeah. in the period I think that the trend in sort of American utopian thought I mean. Was it sort of combined with uh, all the really fantastic advances in science and technology around the turn of the century? Uh, but American sort of the, the, if I may say, the American cult of science and technology was really about things like, you know, the Ford motor car or or, or something like that, where, which was supposed to sort of manifest in real life, like the telephone and how, or, or radio or TV. Not that these things weren't also admired in Russia, uh, but I think there was a kind of you know, I'm generalizing here, but a kind of a rationalist, rationalist economic kind of rationale built in, a free market response, if you will, like a innovation and invention, these kinds of things, rather than mm-hmm. spiritual and mystical. So, Well, okay, so once we are yeah. in space, yeah. um, both on the Russian side and on the U.S. side, and it's Cold War, we have the space race. Yeah. How long does that motivation yeah. last? Does it last for the entirety of the Cold War? Does it... Does it and once we land on the moon, yeah, um, yeah, because yeah. the Russians, I mean, no one else to this day has, <laughs> yeah. you know, the Chinese. I think there are yeah. rumors that the Chinese may soon be on the moon. Yes, this is but true. The, the joke is that by the time we get there, there will be a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the the commitment, the political commitment to the space race doesn't last beyond the moon landing, which is 1969. Neil Armstrong, you know, sets foot on the moon, right. and very soon, public and Congress lose interest in this. So 
In fact, Congress was already reducing its funding. And so everything else has been sort of like, you know, muddled kind of thought about why we should go to space because the the, the key political motivation was gone. So they're all so all the hand wringing for the next subsequent 40, 50 years has been why should we go to space? Now there are some practical reasons why we should have a space program, such as communication satellites, weather satellites, and telecommunication TV and mobile phones and all these other practical things. But they're like a they're not that expensive and they're not that sexy. The real question is, why should we send people into space? I mean, there's really nothing for us to do there in terms of practical reasons. So, right. and that's the question. You know, unless you have a political thing, oh, we're going to beat the Russians. So, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, people basically were constantly having to justify having to send people into space. And uh, and that's where we got by by 2012. You know, we we had a sort of modest program with the shuttle, and and then we got involved in this international space station project, which is quite a huge project. Uh, it hasn't been anything quite as as amazing as Apollo in terms of exciting excitement. So something that will generate public yeah, interest. Not at all. Do you think that uh, looking back over the history of the space program, how important is public discourse and public mm. engagement? Because mm. particularly today, mm-hmm. um, we're at, we're at sort of this mm-hmm. crossroads. I think mm-hmm. uh, in the entirety of, of the way that our that government functions, mm-hmm. because with things like social media mm-hmm. and you know I, I hate to say the internet because the internet's <laughs> been around for decades now, but you know it, it was under. I can't remember if it was the late Bush White House or actually with the Obama White House mm-hmm. that we start uh, the idea that you know if you get so many what is it, 100,000 signatures mm-hmm. to a, oh, yes. a, petition, a right. petition on whitehouse.gov uh, right. yeah. that the White House will issue some sort of official response, sure. something like that. Um, so we're using, we're using the, the sort of modern social media connections mm-hmm. um, to inter- interact with the public mm-hmm. on a large scale. Yeah. Um, and in, in a way, sort of the ephemeralness of things mm-hmm. like Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm are kind of driving the way we do public policy um, yeah. because things get retweeted yeah. so that you can raise uh, yeah. public consciousness and public awareness. Sure. Um, but whenever you think about, should we go into space? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, yeah, it's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, there, there are a plethora of scientific reasons mm-hmm. for us to go into space. Mm-hmm. There are some um, perhaps even ethical reasons for us mm-hmm. to go into space, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like the public discourse on that is, is about to really hit once uh, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar yeah, uh, premieres this fall, be very um, just because uh, I mean it's it's the latest take on this whole thing of uh, something that uh, Stephen Hawking once said, which mm-hmm. is we have to. Uh, I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. here, but basically we have to go into space in order to prevent the human race from going extinct. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we just stay on one planet, right. we run the risk of putting all our, all of our eggs right. in one basket, and right. if you know right. we climate change ourselves into disaster, yeah. or or you know we have we now with nuclear weapons have yeah. the capability to destroy ourselves, yeah. we have to get off this planet if right. we're going to survive as a species. Which is kind of the premise of, of this movie. So yeah, I think that, that yeah. the public discourse with regards to the yeah. utility of space yeah, yeah. is going to is maybe yeah. moving in that direction. Yeah. But what then is sort of the role of public discourse? Yeah. I think you know one of the things we did actually study very carefully what is the role of public discourse and public opinion. Um, you mentioned social media, and we also looked at that too as 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 what is what is it what kind of role does it play. And uh, a couple of members of our committee actually looked into that. And um, for better or for worse, social media plays a role in, in, in articulating and shaping public opinion about important things. And uh, But I have to say that, you know, I mean, social media is like, there, there's, you know, the signal to noise ratio is, is, mm-hmm. is always tilted towards noise because right. you're, you have a lot of opinions and a lot of them 
uh, and again, I, I don't mean to sound <laughs> elitist by saying this since I am an academic, but a lot of it is uninformed, especially about policies that require some maybe um, you know maybe some advanced knowledge, especially sciences, the sciences. So uh, space has a kind of everybody has an opinion about space, but not many people really know exactly what's going on. So for better or for worse, NASA has to acknowledge both the signal and the noise. And so, um, but I think you're right that. You know, things, popular cultural things like uh, the movie Interstellar or, or the movie Gravity, for example, they do shape the way people understand space and what people think do matter, especially if it's if it's a, a public enterprise, not a, like a private enterprise. So, um, yeah, these things are important. Um, and I think that to the to topic that you particularly addressed about the rationale for going into space, rationales are often shaped by these kinds of public discussions on social media or whatever and, and by popular culture we actually looked at that as one of the rationales for why we should send people out into space because uh, for to, to you know to sort of prevent the extinction of the human species now when you talk in those kinds of terms and you know you're talking to Congress or something you're not that's a that's like an abstract thing Congress is really dealing and you know Congress is usually dealing with things that are happening tomorrow usually I mean and it's also to the public where people are trying to live their daily lives these kinds of things are abstractions what do you mean save the human you know um, you know sort of save humanity I'm trying to deal with my job my kids my family etc et so there are there is kind of I think space advocates face a lot of challenges in trying to convince people why we should do this. And especially if you make an argument about, oh, we're going to save humanity. It's, it's an abstraction, right? Unless an asteroid is heading directly towards your house, you're really not going to care. Well, then you have an Armageddon situation. Exactly. Right? Another movie can be summoned to support your <laughs> argument. Well, so. and I wonder, I, I mean, this is completely off the top of my head, but I'm wondering if that's... Part of the reason why that doesn't necessarily work in America mm. is that our, our national spirit is so highly individualistic. Mm. I mean, this is we live in the rags to riches, mm. bootstrap yourself to success yeah. um, society. And, you know, th there's a certain amount of d discourse about freedom and liberty and, you know, my freedom and my liberty. And you're impinging on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, if I'm, I'm wondering if... Part of the, the, the negative consequence of that is yeah. that we have a hard time as a, as a country or as a, as a people mm -hmm. of thinking in terms of a altruistically mm -hmm. or in thinking, thinking oh, in terms of long term, right, right. you know, what is, what, what is going to benefit not just our country, but the entire human right, race. Right. Yeah, um, I think that that plays into that argument. I think it also plays into a kind of what I would consider kind of uh, an animus towards big government or NASA because right. it, it plays into this kind of uh, individualistic uh, pro-corporate kind of message. You see this especially now uh, if, 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 you, if you follow the, the sort of the discussion on space online, there's all these message boards. There's a very vocal contingent of people who hate NASA, who think it's big government and who, you know, are constantly extolling the virtues of corporate, private-funded space exploration. Like SpaceX. Exactly. So, um, and the truth is, of course, SpaceX is heavily subsidized by the government. Right. So, uh, but the, the the truth maybe is, is really important as what the message, the message they convey is one of, you know, individualist, dynamic, kind of free market American kind of spirit uh, message. Well, and I know that one of the things, one of the things that, that people, uh, studies have found yeah. is when you ask people to 
tell you what percentage of the United States budget, mm. the government's budget, mm. goes to NASA. Mm. People have a massively yes. inflated idea of, of what it is. Right. I think it, the total is um, for every dollar, it's a penny or yeah. just under a penny. The, the reality is it's half a penny, really. So. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, you ask somebody, it's like, oh, wow, it must be like, a quarter of the budget, or something. Well, because whenever whenever we send up a telescope, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's a three billion dollar exactly, telescope, right. and they think three billion dollars is a lot of money. Right. Without right. sort of thinking about, okay, right. well, this is the amount of money that yeah. you know Iraq and Pakistan yeah. cost, and this is the amount of money yeah, that exactly. you know the government bailout in two thousand eight, two thousand nine yeah. cost. Yeah. yeah, if you consider, for example, the NASA budget now, which is I think roughly seventeen. 18 billion dollars a year and consider the annual defense budget which is i think a, approximately a trillion so i mean you you are talking about an enormous difference in spending and and also many other civilian investments it's not that nasa doesn't spend a lot of money but comparatively doesn't spend that much actually in terms of all the federal uh, investments yeah right right so to return to the issue of your service on this committee uh why do you think that there was only one historian on the committee you know, I, don't, I, don't, I think people who make public policy uh, aren't too concerned about history. And so I actually think it's amazing that they even had one historian on the committee because uh, the fact that somebody somewhere thought history was important. Uh, we, as historians, understand that history is important, uh, although some of us maybe have trouble explaining why. But we understand it, in, 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 you know, sort of intrinsically. But yeah, I, I think one was, to me, quite a surprise. I would be surprised if there was more than one. Having said that, we did have other um, social scientists. You know, there was a sociologist, uh, at least one or two, and um, political scientists and so forth. So there were other people who may be closer to history than, say, closer to physics or something, yeah. So what then was your sort of overall contribution to the report, not just the historical section at the beginning, uh, but, but I mean, what do you bring to the table uh, and to the final product as a historian? Uh, yeah, this is hard to articulate because a lot, so much of what we contributed sort of was um, difficult to disentangle uh, because we had many, many discussions and throughout two years we met many times. And uh, so the stuff that got abstracted down into the text was often written by multiple people. So it's very hard to really disentangle. But I think one of the things that I, I brought to the table was a general kind of understanding of the importance of the history of the American space program, and in fact, um, all space programs. Uh, because one of the things that's so important to understand is the way in which Apollo itself, it looms over everything we do in space and probably will for the near future. Oh, we had Apollo, we went to the moon, and we can't do anything like that. My question to the committee was, you know, sort of more like, why? Why is this? Why is this such a benchmark? And so um, I think one of the things that we had to sort of disentangle was the myth of Apollo, that everybody supported it, for example. A historian can bring to the table that, look, you look at the poll numbers, actually there was kind of lukewarm support for Apollo. The other is the issue of Apollo as a great exploration, enterprise of exploration or science. No, it was a political kind of stunt, really. Um, and third, I think, in the sense that Apollo um, is kind of... It was an anomaly. I mean, this is not the normal way to run a space program. You don't suddenly throw $100 billion at something and try to fix it. Well, it's not the normal way to run any kind of program at all. At all, any program, really. So a crash program is really not the way to run a program. You know, $25 billion in 1960s dollars uh, was a lot of money. So I think that maybe those are the lessons a historian can bring to the table, that whatever we choose to do in the future, which was one of our charges, was to determine that we shouldn't do that. 
We shouldn't do what we tried to do in Apollo. We can try and do other things that are maybe as impressive, but not in such a crazy frenetic way. So that's those are some examples of the ways in which you know I, I could inform the discussions. Well, that kind of brings me to the final thing I want to talk about, which is the place of historians in the forum of public policy. And you've already alluded to some of that in terms of the things that you brought to the table in serving on this uh, primarily science-based committee. Yeah. Um, in thinking about the role of historians then in developing public policy, uh, two things that I've always felt are, are one that as a historian, I've always felt somewhat con confined or condemned to forever be the observer rather than the participant, because I know that there are always many actors, uh, some of which are known and some of which will not be known for decades. And as a historian, I feel like to some degree, it almost clouds my objectivity to have an opinion about public policy. I mean, I do have those opinions, uh, but I always feel a little um, odd participating in my own democracy um, just because of the, the nature of the historical enterprise. But more importantly, I, number two, history to me is always a little uh, always pluralistic and a little bit liberalizing because in order to do quote-unquote good history um, you have to think outside of your own mental box to begin to understand even if you, you know, don't give assent to um, the period or the subject that you're studying um, but I'm interested to know what you think the role is for historians in the public sphere as someone who has just served um, as both a chair at the National Air and Space Museum and as someone who's just served on a governmental committee. I think that you know this is a complicated issue. I think we uh, reflexively understand that historians are important, especially you know being historians, we we understand that. But it's harder to say exactly how we might be able to shape public policy, which public policy is essentially geared towards the future. And an example I can give is that going back to your comment about a good history is essentially you know engenders a kind of pluralistic perspective among you know the person who's doing it. Um, when we were beginning work on our committee, you know, there was one member who, you know, was thinking that Apollo was a time of great public support and enthusiasm for the national uh, space program in, in the U.S. And but was surprised to discover that, uh, in fact, there, there was kind of lukewarm support for Apollo. That's a kind of an example of a way in which we have a national narrative about some event that it's just beaten into us, and a historian come, can come and say that no, this is actually much. A, a simple, a simple, simplistic version. It's much more complicated, and often, often the reverse of what you may have thought. And these are the kinds of things I think historians can um, can inform public policy. Because if we shape public policy by you know depending on these kinds of very simplistic notions of what happened, often we get we end up in articulating future policies that are just as you know sort of unsophisticated and not thought over. So I think that's one of the ways in which I think history makes our understanding of, you know, our very sort of existence much more complicated. You know, it's it's things are much more complicated than we really think they are. And so Well and that's a mantra that we repeat all the time as historians. This is not as simple as you're making it out to be. Uh, I don't know. I mean I concur with that. Yeah. It still feels confining for our role to be that of of the doubting Thomas. Yeah. But I, I think you're right. I mean, it's not. It, but it's not just a way to shed doubt on something. But it's also a way to sort of uh, establish the idea of precedent, by which I mean that often people will shape public policy and think that's the first time they're doing something. And a historian can come to the table and say, "Look, this has actually happened before," 
for example, if you think about something like Apollo, massive spending, national, federal program, you think, wow, that's, that may be the first time we ever tried something like that. Well, of course, it's not true. You had the, Prior to that, you had the Manhattan Project, uh, which was huge and national and federal. And you had prior to that, you had the Tennessee Valley Authority developing uh, that whole area. So there's, all, so there's ways to think about these projects that have precedent. I think historians provide that also, a kind of knowledge that these kinds of things have been there before and there were ways that we dealt with these problems. Uh, now, how that translates into doing the things in the future, I think in this particular report, you'll find lots of language, actually, in, in the various places in the report saying that we actually did it like this before, and it was either whatever right or wrong, and we must do it like this in the future. And that is a, a, a not insignificant, I think, contribution one can make, uh, that kind of contribution. So, yes, there's one way, you know, we cast doubt, it's much more complicated, but the other is to say that there's precedent for whatever we're doing. Uh, but there are, I think, other ways, too. I think having a historian in, having a professional academic historian brings a kind of academic perspective into these kinds of issues, as opposed to, say, a layperson, a layperson's understanding of history. We all understand that, I think, especially us being in academia, that there's a big disconnect between uh, what lay people think about a historical topic and what we think about a historical topic. Well, and also the term historian, and I'm I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, and it's a bit of a shop talk grudge, but the term historian gets applied to people who are not historians or are, are not professionally trained as historians, uh, sort of anyone who writes a history of something. Yeah. Because the vast majority of popular history books, uh, the kinds of things you find on the shelves that say like a Barnes & Noble, are written by journalists. And, and in fact, you'd be amazed by, I think, 95% of the, what has been written about the space program has been by journalists writing journalistic histories by books you buy at the airport. And so I think, and that shapes people's ideas about what happened in space. I'm Just as in any other topic, I imagine, um, you know, as a historian of the Middle Ages, you, you're probably frustrated by what's popularly written about the Middle Ages. Yeah. And so, uh, but you... It's all about the Templars. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but I'm sure, and then they may, I, I don't know you, but I... You know, I, I've met other medievalists who are frustrated by that popular notion of, and you're sort of fighting against an avalanche, a tide of, of you know, what you're doing. So having an actual historian with a PhD in history, uh, not that a PhD is always going to get you, well, and, no. but just, I, you know, I'm professionally trained. And so, uh, so I have some of the tools that I need, one needs to study history. So having that person on a committee, I think, is maybe a, a corrective against the tide of, of popular history. Now, having said that, I don't want to come out sounding elitist. There is a very important role played by popular history, and, no, I, and I write popular history, too, and I've published a, uh, stuff in that venue. So it's, it's, it has a role. It's just that I think one needs to be careful about how to evaluate what's written popularly, whereas academic history is generally sort of evaluated. Then we have a system of, of how to evaluate, and we have a, a peer review system, etc., that, right. that I think has a, a more sort of effective way to, um, you know, uh, keep up a certain standard. Well, and to talk for a moment about this issue of popular versus sort of academic, uh, within the discipline there is sometimes this dichotomy between popular and academic history, I mean, a false dichotomy, I think, uh, where people who write popular history are often looked down on. Um, I mean, I don't know of a, an instance personally where, say, someone didn't get tenure for writing popular history, but I mean, who knows. Um, and I do think that professional historians should write more popular history. We need to engage with that that forum. Um, but in terms of this report, do you think that you wrote more of a popular history or an academic history here, given what uh, the committee was trying to do and sort of the, the, the objectives in the venue of the, of the committee? 
Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. Uh, I think you know, I, it's a little bit of both. I think we we have all the structure and apparatus of academic work. It has all the footnotes and all the right. primary sources and whatnot. But I think in a way, it's also meant to speak to a larger audience. Academic history and academic historians, such as myself, when I write a, a journal article or write a, a scholarly book, I'm essentially speaking to my colleagues and peers within the historical discipline. So. I'm speaking to such issues as historiography and where it fits in the literature, the arguments and... Um, the history Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> those kinds of things aren't necessarily important in a report like this or in popular history. No one wants to pick a book, pick up a book in an airport and start reading about, you know, <laughs> an arcane historical argument about some esoteric topic. So I think in, in that sense, uh, uh, this is somewhere in the middle. Uh, but I think they did want a professional sort of academic perspective on this. They didn't want the the guy who wrote a book on Apollo on the side, you know. And, and so, which well, there are hundreds of these books, right? Uh, but I, yeah, I felt it very keenly working on this committee that kind of disconnect between popular and, and academic history. I mean, certainly, it's not a problem that only we only face in history. It's very present in the sciences as well, because the vast majority of people can't pick up a scientific journal and understand it. So you have people like Brian Greene writing Elegant Universe and, and trying to make it accessible to a public audience. But um, the realm of popular history, uh, and I know I condemn the dichotomy and now, <laughs> now I'm using it, uh, but particularly for someone like me as a medievalist, that's how we engage with the public. Um, I will likely never be asked to serve on a government committee here in the United States. But you may, you may shape some sort of policy somewhere. I mean, it's true that, you know, as we go back further in, in, in time, it's less pot in this sort of obvious role for historians to shape public policy. But I think there are all sorts of ways. And, you know, for example, you could sit on a committee to determine, you know, the future of the Library of Congress. I mean, there, there's there's other things that I think historians... Shaping education policy. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and... And what we bring as historians to the table is, is a set of tools and skills more than anything else, you know, so uh, not just our particular arcane dissertation topic. So I think in that sense, uh, I, I do think it's a very big positive to have history people on, 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 you know, committees or bodies that are determining some contemporary issue. Uh, because our tools and uh, our, our skills are actually very relevant for many different... Right. I'm a historian first and then a medieval historian second. Exactly. Uh, that's, a, that's the way I like to think of myself. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Asif. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you, Nathan. It was great to, great to talk. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.